0: We are community. For this episode, I'm joined by screenwriter and public speaker Hari Ziad, who is the best selling author of Black Boy Out of Time, a memoir of race, gender, and coming of age in America. Hari is also the creator of racebader.com, quote, a platform created to explore the various ways race is expressed and defined, end quote. Additionally, Hari is a script consultant for David Makes Man, an American coming of age drama television series on the OWN Network. And their writing has been featured in Gawker, Out the Guardian, Huffington Post, Ebony and other notable publications. I'm at the tail end of Black Boy Out of Time, a book I'm reading slowly to absorb all that it offers. I look forward to hearing from Hari about their experiences as a writer and a Black LGBTQ citizen. Welcome. <laughs>
1: Thank you. And I look forward to having this conversation. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for joining me. I found out about your book through Kindle Mm -hmm. and I had finished reading Isabel Wilkinson's book Cast Mm -hmm. and her other book before that, and it recommended yours. And I was excited because it was not only Black, but LGBTQ+. I'll ask you more about it later. I just really zoned into it right away. When I started reading, I was like, ooh, I should reach out to him. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you did. So how are you?
1: I'm doing okay. I just moved. I've been in LA for a year, but I just moved within the city to another neighborhood, which feels like another city because it's so big and it's on the other side of town. But settled in now and yeah, just dealing with that and trying to catch up on work.
0: I moved to LA when I was in my early 20s. So I know LA quite well. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I might need to tap into that knowledge I'm so new and it's so different from New York I was in New York for 11 years still feels like home in so many different ways and it's been an an adjustment for sure but it took me a while to like fall in love with New York too so I'm giving myself time to do that here and definitely like every day I'm learning new things about it to
0: love and you said you've been there a year in LA
1: yeah a little over a year
0: How are you with
1: driving everywhere? Well, I don't even have a car yet. And thankfully, the job I moved here for was mostly remote and I was kind of close by. So I've just been Ubering around. A friend will like lend me a car when they're out of town, things like that. It's been okay. I mean, I didn't drive in New York, obviously. So I'm like not used to this traffic. I drove a lot, though, in North Carolina, where my family is, and Cleveland, where my family is from. But it's definitely different with this much traffic.
0: The uh, LA is its own beast. I last lived in Hollywood, you know, especially when you get a car that you really like. For me, I was just like, I'm in this car that's really, really cute, and I'm just stuck in traffic all the time. So you say you moved there for work?
1: Yeah, so the first TV show that I wrote on last year like I said, it was remote, so I was able to start when I was in New York, but the hours were different. And then I knew I wanted to do more TV. So it just made sense to come out here and do it from the West Coast. And I'm sticking with the whole I'm going to try to do this Hollywood thing. <laughs> okay. I went to school for film and TV and then I left to do like journalism and I wrote the book and everything. And I kind of had given up on it because. It can be a very soul-sucking industry, but yeah, I feel like I'm more grounded. I know more about how I want to approach it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I made that commitment again, and hopefully it's not as stressful as it was. I worked in TV for a little bit after I graduated, too, and I hated it. But so far, it's been a different experience, approaching it as an adult and as someone
0: who already has a body of work out there congratulations thank you thank you yeah so you say you're originally from cleveland yes ohio (laughs) (laughs) i heard that tone in there
1: (laughs) (laughs) no i love cleveland it's something definitely i was trying to get away from as a kid i'm like let me get out of here there's not much to do there but you gain an appreciation of it i think as an adult it's a nice place to call home i have like a weird love hate relationship with it cuz it feels so stifling and there's not a lot of opportunity and there's not a lot of things to do but it's also home like you know your neighbors in a different way than you do anywhere out here and even in new york and that's like something i've definitely missed but yeah ohio <laughs>
0: You say it the same way I talk about Phoenix. <laughs> I appreciate that it's changing, but it still feels the same. And the whole thing, like you mentioned, was neighbors. I got so used to L.A. that I was used to not talking to neighbors. And when I would go back home, people were like, they think you're kind of stuck up because you don't speak to them. I was like, because I don't know them. And then I was like, oh, that's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thankfully, like I'm in Windsor Hills now, and it's very different here. Like people say hi to you in the streets and stuff. But in my last apartment, people I would see every day like at their mailbox or something, I would say hi. It's just like second nature for me. They would literally just stare you in the face and just not respond. Like I understand not having a whole full-blown conversation, but not even greeting or returning a greeting is really weird to me. I'm really grateful to be in a different part of LA where that seems to be approached in a different way you mentioned college where did you go to school I went to NYU I think New York was a great place for me to be and to like find myself NYU is like right in the middle of the city like there's no campus really that has clear boundaries but they do a good job of like encouraging you to stay within the NYU area I didn't really even have a metro card I don't think until like junior year of college. And so I really didn't get the full New York experience until then. But once I did, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is my place.
0: Yeah, no, it's a great city. I have family there. I was actually just there uh, early summer. It's a beautiful electric city, I think.
1: The people there, I mean, people don't speak to all their neighbors necessarily in New York either, but it's a different kind of engagement. If you're seeing a neighbor every day, you'll still do the nod, even if you're not going to sit and have a conversation with them.
0: Your name is not European. What's the origins of it?
1: My first name is Sanskrit. My mother converted to Hinduism when she was about 20. And so we all have Indian names. Hari means one who takes away bad things. My full name is actually Hari Gora. And my last name is Ziad. My dad was Muslim. It's an Arabic name. And my dad also converted to Islam when he was in his 20s, or maybe a little bit later than that, actually. So they're both converts, um, both Black American folks. Mm -hmm. But that's how I got my name.
0: How was that growing up in a multi-religious home?
1: I loved it. Our extended family was very christians i would say i grew up church adjacent like people are always like surprised i know all the gospel songs and stuff i was like in gospel choir as a kid both of my parents they did a lot of like multi-faith work in cleveland too so that was just like a part of our life we knew people from all different walks of life you hear all these stories about you know Especially when you talk about Black kids in school and like how hard it is to be different. And that really wasn't my experience at all. Like people approached it with curiosity. People wanted to know more. I would bring friends on holiday trips with me and stuff. I really actually didn't have any negative experiences growing up like that. I don't practice either faith now, but I also just like took a lot of what. I grew up with incorporated into my spiritual practices today, and I'm really appreciative of that too. So yeah, I have a really fond memory of most of that. Like we mostly grew up in the temple and Hinduism, and there's a lot of stuff that went on with that, but growing up multi-faith wasn't the issue. It was like any other community had its problems.
0: I would imagine as a creator, that's just such a rich stew of of experiences to have at your disposal.
1: Yeah. And oddly enough, I mean, outside of the book, like even in my journalism, like I didn't really talk about that so much before the book. I was trying to figure out why that was i think i still am trying to figure that out because like you said there's so much to pull from that there's so many stories and i would love to tell them on a different scale at some point Mm -hmm. but yeah the book hopefully will give some people a taste of what that was like i have a lot of siblings too so a lot of it was already done by them (laughs) like most of my siblings are older They had already kind of figured out this way to balance what it meant to grow up as a Black Hare Krishna. and A lot of it was just following their lead. So that was helpful, too. I have 18 siblings between my two parents, but grew up mostly with my mother's kids. There were 10 of us. It was interesting and different. I didn't know too many other people who had that many siblings. It was also one of those experiences that I really appreciated then and now. To have such a a huge family
0: i'm the oldest but my siblings are a lot younger so i never went to school with them and most people even today assume i'm an only child i think because of how i present out in the world how big is the? my brother is like six and a half years younger my sisters are 10 and 18. okay (laughs) yeah so i always felt like their uncle more than their brother
1: My oldest sister is 20 years older than me, and growing up, definitely, was more of like a second mother, Mm -hmm. and especially now that my mother passed away, it's like a more of a motherly relationship, although we've become more friends as I've gotten older. And then my youngest brother is seven years younger
0: than me, so there's like a 30-year age gap between them almost. I've been following you on Twitter for a little bit of time, and what I really like is that Well, I think similar to the book is that you're very good with putting it out there as far as the topic of race and racism in a way that is unapologetic and I do believe needed. I think we still hide a lot of the realities of racism in particular in the shadows. But I like that you are upfront about that.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I try to be. And that's To some extent, part of my mother's legacy to my grandmother, she was very much a freedom fighter in various senses of the word. And I think she kind of like instilled that into her kids. They tried to do the same with us. But I think also growing up Hindu and being queer, whether you wanted to or not, you were unapologetically different. My gender expression was different. And so I think all of those things kind of lended themselves to just that being my approach in life, tried to maintain that. I think getting older and having more things, relying on how well you can not ruffle feathers, you kind of forget that. But thankfully, my mother, I have to credit her for like instilling that into her kids try to maintain that core as much as I can.
0: I definitely sense that when I've read your work and seen what you've been posting. If I'm understanding correctly with the religion, I don't know if I'm correct in assuming was there a little bit of that in the church or in the temple with race or racism?
1: It was such a weird way of manifesting. This particular branch of Hinduism was brought to America from India And his main purpose was to spread it to the West. And obviously that generally meant white people. And this was during like the 70s. So these were white people who thought they were also very progressive, but it was also they're white. So what that looked like was a bunch of white people converting first. My mother was actually one of the first Black devotees to get initiated by her guru who brought the religion here. And so they went through a lot of more overt stuff when they started. So 20 years later, when I'm born, they're already well-established in the community. But one of the core tenets of Vaishnavism or the higher Krishna religion and Hinduism as a whole really is we're not the body, we're the soul. So they would take that and mean like we don't have to talk about race. So there was a lot less explicit racism happening, a lot of more of just don't bring up any problems that you might experience because you're Black, because then you're focusing on something that we shouldn't be focusing on. I think as a kid, too, you like are not really understanding what's going on because it's happening in this weird subtle form. But as you get older, it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there was a lot of that, a lot of stuff that I learned about my mother's experience growing up that contextualized all of that. She got arrested when she tried to enter a temple for the first time with her mother. Like they called the police on her. You shouldn't be here. Like the people who did that were still very much within the community. And so, yeah, definitely was a lot of problems with race. My mother, she became like one of the leaders of the community in Cleveland. And she would go out of her way to evangelize to other Black people. So while we were growing up, a lot of the other devotees that we grew up with were Black, and then we would travel and like go to festivals outside of the city all the time. But a, a good portion of the community in Cleveland were Black, when you think about the history, the larger context of race in the Hare
0: Krishna community. I want to talk about your book, Black Boy Out of Time. You know, I've been recommending it to people because Where I'm at right now in my life, you're a Black queer person who touches on all the things that we deal with in our day-to-day lives. You do talk about things that are unique to you and your experiences, but it's universal because you touch on topics and experiences that we as, as Black people in general experience. Can you share about how that project got started or why?
1: like I said, I went to NYU for film. I was working in TV for a little bit. And I was like, the stories that I want to tell, I'm not able to make them. <laughs> like There are so many structural barriers that are preventing you from having real honest conversations about what it means to be a Black person, especially just starting off. And I did a little work in news. And so I kind of had experience with the world of journalism look like. So I'm like, I'm going to start writing. I started like freelancing about stuff that were my experiences being black and queer was finding that there were also hard to get those out in the world in the way that I wanted to without being stripped down and without being able to talk about things directly to other black people on the scale that I wanted to. And so I was like, I'm just going to start my own platform for this. And so I started a, a website called Race Bader, where I published a lot of work. Like it just slowly started building an audience to the point where like people were sending up monthly donations, and that allowed me to expand to publish other writers, and it became a space for us to talk to other black people without really engaging with the idea that Tony Morrison talks about it's like racism is a distraction. So I named it Race Bader because I'm like, I know that when people see folks having these conversations in an honest way like this, you're going to get certain charges levied against you. You're going to be called a race baiter, reverse racist. I wanted to embrace that from the outset so that we never have to constantly be engaging with that. And so in doing that, I started to just, you know, settle into the world of journalism. I met my agent from writing around that time. And she was like, oh, yeah, I think you should write a book. And I'm like 26 or something at the time. And so she really encouraged me to do that. And while I was trying to figure out what that book would look like, I was very interested in the concept of prison abolition. That's a lot of the things that we wrote about on Race Bader prison and police abolition, queerness and gender and all of those things. And then my mother got sick with cancer and I realized that she was a part of all of those conversations and my relationship with her was connected to all of those things in one way. And so the book kind of became about me trying to reckon with what it meant to lose my mother, as a prison abolitionist, as a Black queer person, and tying that very personal experience to those larger concepts. And that's kind of how it came about. And it took about like three years to write. Um, I finished it right before my mother passed away. And it kind of just encapsulated that whole two and a half years of dealing with that.
0: It's a beautiful piece, I think, because it's so honest. And a reminder to me, the importance, what you display in your book is just share your story and people will relate if you're coming from a genuine place. And I definitely feel that when I read it. Mm,
1: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we talk about this a lot and like when I'm pitching things, you alluded to this earlier too, like there's so much universality that you can get from the specifics of a story if someone is being authentic about that because we have certain things that we all know and feel we just fill them based on a different experience and so if you can be really honest about that experience and how those thoughts and feelings came up then other people even though they might have a very different experience should be able to engage with that. And so that's how I approach everything. I am not trying to translate for everyone who might not know inside ways of talking, intercommunal ways of talking. I'm not trying to minimize the things that might be very niche in my life if they were important to me. I think it's a much more interesting writing process to like find this thing that maybe only you understand and write it in a way that other people can find access into it. I think that's the beauty of writing.
0: I like translate because non-Black work, be it literary or film or TV, most of it is not translated. Mm -hmm. But some of my favorite works are not written about Black people, but I find my story in it.
1: It's okay to ask your audience to do some work. Part of what I love about art is that Like, oh, it's asking me to do something. And if that means, like, I have to figure something out or I have to look something up and see what that means, that's okay. We invite other people who might not, you know, know immediately what something means when I write it to do that same work. Like, you can do that, but I'm not necessarily going to be the one that's going to be doing that for you. Yeah,
0: I like that too. Which brings me to, for me, doing my own work. I like the term that you have, Miss Afropedia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can you share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so a lot of my work always centered around like how Black childhood and Black children are engaged, because I think that that's connected to how anti-Blackness manifests in general. And so I was just thinking about the ways that this type of anti-child oppression, which I think all children in this society experience to one extent or another is actually an oppressive system. We don't really talk about it as an oppressive system, though, even though we know that there's a problem with how kids are treated in this society. And so I was thinking of what terms are out there to describe this. And I was thinking about how, like, misopedia, the hatred of children, also how the specific way that that translates in Black childhood is important to distinguish. I was thinking about how the term like misogynoir, how that helped us to define more specifically how Black women experience sexism and misogyny. And I just knew that that experience of the discrimination against Black children and oppression that Black children live through was going to come up a lot with the book. So I was like, I need a term for this. There's no term out there. I'm going to use this term. I don't like saying that I coined it, mostly because I know that a lot of people have talked about this before, but the word I came up with to describe an experience that I think we are familiar with, which is specific ways that Black children are denied access to their full selves. And that is through, you know, gender policing, it's through anti-Black violence, it's through the school, to prison pipeline, it's through a lot of these systems and that I think are all rooted in the same fundamental disdain for Black children.
0: You're adding to the conversation, especially in the last few years with the most recent public murders of Black citizens. I'm older than you, and I can say your generation is really given me permission to reprogram myself and to say some things that are just taken as this is the way it is for Black folks. It's like, well, but why?
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, why are us as children having to grow up a lot quicker than our counterparts? Or why are we seen as adults a lot younger than our counterparts? I understand all of that for survival, but I like that you're talking about it in a public way that says we need to dissect this.
1: And is it something that we can survive ignoring and survive not talking about? I think the answer is no. Like, I don't think that there's any way that we can get free without freeing Black children. That's what I wanted to to talk about in the book.
0: I think it adds to what you were saying earlier about, you know, us speaking to each other. Your projects, your book is speaking to us. If other people want to read it, that's fine. I interviewed somebody last year in Sweden, an activist, a Black activist, Samuel Girma, who talked about that. I'm tired of talking about us for them. Let's let's focus on the conversations being just amongst us and for us, Mm -hmm. because this is where the true healing needs to begin. Right. Not to get them to understand our pain. We already know that.
1: It's energy to try and have all those conversations, even if it was something that is possible to do, to change minds, which I could debate on that. Even if it was possible to like write a book and get white people to think about race differently, all of that energy that you're using to do that could also be used to like heal yourself, to heal other black people. We're neglecting that work so often because our approach to These problems is so focused on them and so we don't build places for us to do the healing work we don't build places for us to figure out what our relationship to black children are and how we might be contributing to those things how we might be contributing to other systems within our communities that might be harmful but also we miss you know the things we've been doing for generations to break out of those cycles we lose so much when we're just facing out.
0: Mm -hmm. Facing out, that's a good way to put it. Your book is a bestseller. How has the response been within the Black LGBT community to it?
1: The book came out during the pandemic and the book is through an Amazon imprint. It was a bestseller on Amazon. They've been like pushing it. And it's such an interesting thing because I'm like, there are Different communities that Amazon is promoting to, and then I am trying to engage. And so I feel like a lot of the response trickles in slowly over time. Like, I think I'm still getting a sense of what our community actually feels about it. Short answer to your question is I'm still figuring out what that response has looked like. But overall, so far, it has been. Very positive. I used to have a different engagement back when I was doing more journalism. I was more active on Facebook. This was probably before you started following me on Twitter. And I think a lot of folks regarded my work not how I regarded it, which is it's about healing. A lot of folks thought I was just, you know, trying to break things and just challenging other people, other ideas. I'm not a liberal, so a lot of what I was engaging was calling out the problems of liberalism and how that's not going to be helpful for us. And I think a lot of people were surprised that this was so Mm healing-focused and not about everything that's wrong with Black people's engagement, although that's a part of it. For me, yeah, that's been interesting to see that people were surprised with that. But it makes sense now in hindsight, especially that I'm not really on social media the way that I used to. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people
0: thought that I was meaner than I am.
1: And that's just social media. You
0: can't really get a sense of who people are. Maybe it's just interpreting it. Because I can even say for myself, the truth sometimes is uncomfortable, but it's how I'm filtering it in. So I need to look at why I'm uncomfortable. We just are used to putting blankets over it, putting lipstick on it instead of just letting it be raw and what it needs to be That's just my interpretation of it.
1: I don't know. I completely agree
0: since you are a screenwriter, would you ever consider transitioning this to a film or TV project?
1: We were in talks with a bunch of different people about that and their ongoing kind of died down a little bit as I've taken on other projects, but even if it's not a direct adaptation of the book, I definitely want to revisit growing up Hare Krishna as a Black person in TV or in a film medium at some point. So it's just a matter of when that'll happen. It's really difficult to do autobiographical work unless you're like huge in TV or in film, starting off. My anticipation is that after I get a couple other notches on my belt, then I'll be able to revisit in the way that I would want to. But definitely I'm interested in doing that.
0: We've talked about the Black aspect with you being queer. Are you out completely in your professional life?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> definitely I feel like, and this was one of the benefits of doing journalism too, is like so much of my shit was already out in the world. Like I've been writing about my life for such a long time. I've been talking to a lot of friends in the industry because I don't necessarily get as many meetings, but the meetings that I do get with folks are with like people who already know for the most part where I'm coming from. And that means that the potential for collaboration and for alignment is so much greater because of that. I think if I had just started off right after college and like hadn't really put a lot of my stuff out there publicly, it would be a lot harder to find that alignment or I would be doing a lot more muting myself or staying in the closet or being pressured at least to do that. And not just about queerness, but about everything. If you Google me, you're going to find out I'm a prison abolitionist and all of these things.
0: I feel like we're coming up on a renaissance, the Black LGBTQ plus community. Social media seems to be helping us and like, this is our voice. Mm -hmm. I just recently, and I posted it, I was a little afraid to do it, but really shocked that a major publication had an article about LGBT weddings. I went through 31 photos and there was not one black man and not one black male couple. Mm. And this is not knocking that, because I know that that's a huge thing. The person at the top may not be aware of what's going on beneath, but it did surprise me. And I just bring that up because, yeah, with you being out in your work, incorporating who you are into your pieces, uh, visiting Friends who have this great movie collection of gay movies. These are great works. I still want to see people like me.
1: That was the whole Bros conversation, right? I don't know if you felt the full (laughs) weight of the whole conversation being out of the country, but you know, Bros with Billy Eichner was marketed as like the first major studio-produced gay rom com. It didn't do well in the box office. And he was like lashing out, like everybody's homophobic. But I'm like, this wasn't marketed to us. Like when you saying, oh, this is a queer film and it's just two white men. We've seen that. Yeah. And you're marketing it as this groundbreaking thing. And I heard actually the film is good. But I'm like, why do you still think that white gayness is groundbreaking? It's not. There's nothing groundbreaking about it. No. And I think we we as in like black queer folks are at a stage where we're just not interested in accepting that anymore. And especially at the expense of our own stories.
0: Being overlooked, literally. (laughs) You know, nobody's saying those stories aren't important, but 50 plus years after Stonewall and we're still climbing out of the gutter saying we're here. Right. How is it for you in your professional life in general? You know, we talked about just now with bros and racism and race. We're not unique in homophobia being in the Black community, but we do experience it. How is it for you working with Black, straight identified professionals?
1: In my experience is very new. I don't have that much experience, but what is set up in Hollywood is that if you're Black, I just kind of posted about this on Twitter, you get ahead by reinforcing how things work. So if you are coming into a space that already has issues with telling the stories of black queer people, the fact that you are at the position to, you know, now be making decisions, you probably have already adopted that mindset as well. Uh-huh. I may be even more enthusiastic about reinforcing that because you know how precarious your position is. And so I found that happens a lot with Black people in Hollywood. They become the enforcers of the ways that Hollywood can be exclusionary to other Black folks and other people of marginalized identities. And then it gives the white people who are behind them more room to like, it's not me. Mm. They can be the overseer, basically. And i know that's not everybody but that's been my experience
0: for me it's a scary question to ask because i know it's an extension of just society in general but we still haven't had those in-depth conversations we're part of this community too mm-hmm. i know with what was going on with netflix and i think he's a great entity too dave Chappelle. but when I watched it, I have to say I was wondering, and it didn't seem to be a part of the conversation, like, did you talk to those of us in the Black community? Because I didn't get that from what was being talked about on stage.
1: And people like Dave Chappelle's head is like, all trans people are white. And that's how they approach it. And then the queer people that are in their lives, they expect them to be very quiet of us. So they wouldn't have a conversation with them because... They've been quiet about their queerness and they're okay with that. I've worked with straight black folks who have queer siblings and things like that, and they're okay with that. But it would come up in like different conversations that you know their brother or their sister or whatever was quiet about it. And so that's a different type of queerness. Like it's okay to be queer as long as you're not trying to change anything. And I feel like with folks like Dave Chappelle, if he does have any queer people in his life, he would naturally gravitate towards the ones who would never challenge him on the things that he say. It's an interesting situation to be in.
0: I feel like we're at a point now that us collectively and individuals like enough. <laughs> yeah. I know I have examples in my own family structure. You know, like you said, it's like uh, we could be okay with it as long as you don't talk about it too much. To kind of backtrack a little of who you are, how were you when you discovered your gift for writing?
1: I feel like I've been a storyteller for a very long time. And this kind of goes back to growing up in the higher Christian community too. It's very much a storytelling religion. I'm Like I remember growing up, my mother would be cooking and we were homeschooled and instead of doing homework or something we would just read to her from the scriptures and she read to us a lot from the scriptures and there's a lot of myths that we utilize in the higher Krishna religion to tell different stories. So I just grew up with a lot of those reading and watching a lot of Krishna related things and it just felt, like a normal part of life to tell stories and to listen to stories and to use that to gain an understanding of the world and then around the time i was like five i want to say like my dad got this vhs camera and i remember just falling in love with this camera i'm like how do i tell stories with this camera and there was like this trick where you could like make yourself disappear i I read about it in the book And that's like, oh, I can tell stories in this way, too. And that that kind of stayed with me. I started writing my first book. I don't think I ever finished it, but I wrote like 50 pages of a book when I was like 10. Um, And it was a fantasy novel about Pangea. It was like the whole supercontinent, but there were humans and dinosaurs all living at the same time. I wish I still had that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it just was like from a young age, like I was always trying to like tell stories and I was like just fall in love with any new medium that was put in front of me. And my parents encouraged it. That's another thing that I really appreciate for them is they always encourage the arts with us. And it kind of just settled to that as I got to high school and started to think about what I wanted to do. I knew it had to be telling stories in some way.
0: So you knew early on that it was something you wanted to pursue as a career.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My mother, she was very much about, you know, get good grades, go to school. She very well could have been one of those parents that's like, do all of this to make money, go to business school, or be a lawyer, be a doctor. But she did all of that and still allowed us to explore what we wanted to do. I'm so grateful for that. Her being so unapologetic about her differences was a part of her like spiritual path and like carving out a space to be herself as a Black woman in this world. She's like, be yourself, do what you want to do. And my role as a parent is to support you in doing that. And I hope to be the same kind of parent with my kids.
0: She sounds like she's very intentional and how she was as a parent. Yeah, yeah. Making sure that the next generation is better. Very much so. I read your March, 2021 article in The Root or on theroot.com debating whether Black people can be gentrifiers. I like that piece because you touched on a question mark that I think a lot of us have when we move into these areas that are changing, displacing people of color. But the thing that stood out to me was when you said it should also be defined by specific benefits afforded to the displacer, such as being protected by police or catered to in shops. And that was like the answer for me. We may come in with the means financially, but are we treated the same as those who are moving into the neighborhood who are not Black?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's something like I'm always wrestling with, especially like now I'm in a whole new city. Like at least I knew... New York, I didn't feel like I was in a space, like I was automatically taking away from it because I knew the traditions, knew how to respect them. And then here, it's like, oh, it's a whole new place, whole new traditions, whole new customs. Also making different money than I was making before, trying to figure out where to fit in. So yeah, that's something I'm always wrestling with, and I think been wrestling with a lot over the last year, which is why I wrote that piece before I moved out here. And I don't know if I've figured it out completely, but I think that um, just listening to the people that have been there before is a really important first step. We are talking about, you know, what it means to know your neighbors. Like, that's so important to me because I feel like unless you can do that There's going to be some aspect of you that does contribute to the gentrification of the space, because so much of that is destroying community in order to combat that. Like, you have to just be really intentional about that.
0: I didn't understand fully gentrification and the insidiousness of it in some ways until I visited family in New York in 2018 there in Brooklyn. And I was out and about just as a visitor. I don't really know New York. And I went to this bookstore and I went in and I saw that they weren't black, but that didn't really register with me. But what I became aware of right away is I was treated like I was trespassing. Mm -hmm. My first thought was, they don't know if I live in this neighborhood. They've moved in here and they've decided that the people who are here are not their neighbors.
1: That's how they operate. And I feel like it's so easy to adapt that mindset. And I want to like be challenging that. It's like, if I move into a place, I don't want to feel like the people who are here before me are not my neighbors. <laughs> and I don't want them to feel like that about me either. But until I get to know them, I'm not. <laughs> so it's up to me to do that work. That's a very colonialist mindset.
0: Well, I want to thank you again. Every interview is a great interview, but because I'm reading, you know, your work now, it's like, it's really great to meet the person behind the work.
1: Thank you for having me. I haven't done a lot of conversations about the book recently because I've been all in TV stuff. I feel recent. <laughs> I'm like, maybe I should do more of these.
0: <laughs> Speaking of just one last question, if it's okay. You were a script consultant for the show that I mentioned in the intro. Can you just share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so that is a show by Terrell McCraney, who wrote the play that Moonlight is based on. Uh, It was his first show. He had been reading some of my work before. I was like, oh, I feel like you might have a good sensibility for television, which is really interesting. He didn't know that I went to film school and wanted to do TV. And he was like, I have this project. Let's talk and see how we can work on it. And that's actually what got me back into TV. Like, I was not thinking about TV at all. He told me about this project, and I was like, oh, cool. It sounds really great. It is also based on his life somewhat. Oh, okay. Black kid in Miami who his father figures killed, and he's, like, dealing with what that means, and his own like mental health, going through the things that Black kids go through. His best friend is also exploring his queerness. It's a really beautiful show. If you like Moonlight, you'll probably really enjoy the show. But he wanted me to come on because I've talked about a lot of issues about anti-Blackness and gender in particular, I think. And just seeing how they were able to craft that show in that room it showed me, I guess, for the first time, that maybe the kind of stories that I want to tell in Hollywood, maybe it is possible to do that. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so that's when I was like, okay, I wrote my sample and I started putting myself out there for other jobs after I got on that one.
0: Do you have any last comments or anything you'd like to end with?
1: If any of your listeners are interested in buying the book, you can find it on Amazon, anywhere you get books, Black Boy Out of Time, or on my website, which is just my name, hariziad.com. Thank you for having me.
0: And where can we find you online?
1: I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Hariziad. Enjoy the rest of your evening and we'll talk soon
0: thank you for spending time with us if you enjoyed this episode please rate comment and subscribe share with your friends too you can also follow us on instagram at our black gay diaspora and on twitter at blk gay diaspora until next time